0: So I've been in the Middle East a long time, so there's a pers- that's the personal background, um, but this also comes out of a personal experience and a journey that I've had, so it's, it's not simply what the Lord has kind of given me, or I can understand it, comes out of a personal experience of the well, and, and it's kind of an inner mixture of these things, and it's still kind of unfolding, Um, So, this morning what I'm going to deal with is kind of lay out a chronology, and in that chronology I'm going to show you my personal journey and what I've experienced over the last five years, but in a larger context of the 20th century and 21st century. And there's reasons for that, because I will be dealing with the diasporas uh, the diaspora of Eastern Christianity in the 20th and 21st century into America's west, uh, which relates directly to church reconciliation today probably for the first time in church history so um, that's how I'm going to address it the first thing I'll do is a, is a chronology and this chronology does not include everything they're just kind of big points, and again, the purpose of the whole genealogy is to give you a bigger macro perspective of things. And then I'm going to put in my personal experience during this time so you can kind of see where what God was doing in my life fits into the larger chronology things. Then I'm going to deal with five prophetic themes that over this time the Lord has formed in me and that I would like, that I think are key themes of what I would call prophetic themes that have come out that the Lord's led me into. And then this afternoon will be the macro perspective. That actually, some of the pieces just came together for me the last few days. So, chronologically, uh, again, you don't need to write all this down, but if we're dealing with the 20th century, um In 1917, of course, you had uh, 1917, the Communist situation, the takeover of Communism rose. 1922 is the Armenian Massacre, which Armenians are Oriental Orthodox. You will find out later on, but that's the big massacre that took place in Diaspora of the Armenians. 1923 was the population exchange between the Turks and the Greeks. And that's when, um, when Turkey became a modern nation in 1923, when the, after World War I, when the Ottoman Empire broke up. Uh, most of Anatolia, what we know is Turkey, we're at least a third or four, you know, we don't know exactly how much, were Christian. And they go back to the Eastern Orthodox uh, of the <coughs> early uh, century. We'll talk about that more later this afternoon. But there was a population exchange where they told all Greeks, were, which grew, go back really to the Roman Byzantine period, both Greek they really didn't understand themselves as Greeks but as Romans in the Eastern Roman Empire and Constantinople was New Rome uh, as as we'll see church history but this population exchange was huge because it also included a diaspora a diaspora is really a force scattering of people we've probably heard about the Jewish diaspora, but we, there are many diasporas that uh, we would, maybe the good way of immigration, but immigration is more often intentional immigration, right? People choosing to immigrate somewhere. Diaspora is more of an intentional forced immigration or diaspora that's that through persecution or circumstances, people are scattered through the earth. And what we're going to talk about is how Eastern Christianity has been scattered, especially into the West, in diaspora in the 20th and 21st century. And then of course we know that, uh, so you have World War I, and this is when out of World War I came the modern uh, Middle Eastern nations that never existed before. This was all, they were all under the Ottoman Empire. So, the modern nation states that we know of today, Iraq, Syria, all that, all came into existence after World War I. And then, in 1929, the Vatican became a a city-state. So, this now is looking a little bit more to Western Christianity as we'll see later on, but the Vatican, even though Vatican, the Catholic Roman Catholic Church in the West had lands that they would call papal states, they weren't really modern nation states as after World War I. So the Vatican became a modern nation, a city-state mm-hmm. uh, in 1929. So you can see even during, the, very close to the diaspora of the Byzantine Empire, the in the west that occurred and then in 1979 of course as we know the Iranian revolution and the huge Iranian diaspora my dentist is Iranian my you know I mean Iranians are really integrated in the United <coughs> States doing many things and many of them are Christian many of them are Protestant backgrounds because they come out of the Persian Empire not the Byzantine Roman Empire, but they have um, many, I mean, there's Iranian, uh, but this comes out of the diaspora after 1979, after the, the Iranian Revolution. And then uh, we have World War II, and even during that time, there's some diaspora. And then just to give you, now I'm bringing in my own Experience. Okay, 1989 is the first time that I went to Turkey. I studied in Israel in 1978-79. Uh, so I was in Jerusalem. So this is very quick, not as detailed as I'm going to get into the 21st century because it's relevant to what's going on in the Middle East today and what we're experiencing. But this is going to be very important when we get to this afternoon. Okay? Um, do you have a razor here? No, but I can get you a paper towel. Just paper towel? It's on this end. Yeah. Um, as he's getting that, is there any quick questions? Our clarification. Okay, I hope you write this. Yes. Uh, just what was the sense of things in Jerusalem for you during when the Iranian revolution uh, revolution was happening? Right. What was it that? It happened for? right afterwards. What was interesting when I was there was the first time Sadat from Egypt came to Israel, the first they made an agreement with Egypt and Israel. Then Sadat was killed afterward by radical Muslims, but Sadat was the president of Egypt. So I was there at a time where there was a real sense of openness and hope that there was going to be some settlement between, but it was also full of Palestinian refugee camps that I was going, that I would travel, because I studied the historical geography of the Bible, so I traveled through the land quite extensively. Okay, now, um,
1: can I ask a question? Yeah. My, my history is not too good. So the Byzantine Empire was considered Western
0: Christianity? Eastern. Eastern. And yes. the Roman Empire what was considered Western. Western. Okay. Yeah, we'll talk more about it. It'll be clearer this afternoon. But basically, when we talk Byzantine, the Byzantium was the settlement where Constantinople was established, so that's why the, the, the Eastern Roman Empire, because Rome was both West and East, but when Constantine became a Christian, which I believe he did, uh, he established Constantinople as New Rome in the East. The, the, the Eastern part spoke Greek. Rome and the western parts spoke Latin. So you have two centers in the Roman Empire. What they would call Old Rome or European Rome, and Constantinople, which they they called New Rome. So that's the, the the division of the the and and the the group, the Eastern Byzantine would be called Eastern Orthodox. So Byzantine Eastern Orthodox would be Greek-speaking Eastern section of the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman Catholic, uh, which later on will be we know as the Holy Roman Empire that established, uh, spoke Latin and was in the West. So we'll talk about a lot of that this afternoon. But those are the division of the Eastern. Okay, in the 21st century, this brings it up into our day. In September 2011, of course, we had the attack on the trade right? 2001. 2001. What's that? Uh, Oh, one. (laughs) Okay, 2001. Now, what's interesting, in October of 2001, we invaded Afghanistan. In 2002, for our purposes, the Turkish Islamic AK Party came into power in Turkey, which is it's an Islamic party, and I was in the country, many of us are in the country when that took place. Uh, 2003, U.S. invaded Iraq. Now it was interesting. That was the time where the AK Party literally was just voted in, and we wanted to go in baby Rock through Turkey, and the Turkish government, the AK Party, which is much more Islamic leaning and has become much more visibly Islamic. Um, would not allow the U.S. to use uh, their land to invade Euro- Iraq. This really changed up things on how our invasion of Iraq took place. But basically, this, you could see the Now, in 2009, again, think big picture. I don't want to get into the weeds. But you, you did have what they called the Green Uprising in Iran. This was a populist uprising that the U.S. never backed, and it, some people. Uh, this so this is before the Arab Spring began. This is if you really want to talk about the beginning of uprising in the Islamic world, it first started in Iran, and we did not back it. And there's all kinds of. Uncertainty of why we did or whatever what we did. Now, in May, now this is my personal story starts coming in. In in, in May of 2010, okay. I'm just gonna uh, Andy his call. <clears throat> I was in Turkey and I got I got a call from wife, her name is Mary, whose husband is um, Paul Miller and Paul you probably wouldn't know but he comes from nobility out of Austria, his father was nobility so there is he's very, I mean he wouldn't he's a very strong believer he's given a life, I've known him for a long long time, well he was turning 60 in May of 2011 and Mary called me and said I don't have anything really to give Paul you know I mean what am I going to give him you know they, they, they pretty much have a really big endowment you know so they live very not extravagantly but they don't have any concerns as it relates to that and so she said what I've decided to do is have three of his best friends join him for a spiritual retreat in a monastery. And we, plan, we were planning to do it in Damascus with an Egyptian monk. Oh, wow. And it's an Egyptian monk that his name is Atef Mikhail, his Coptic background, which is Eastern Christian, Oriental Orthodox. But he's been a monk, he was a one of the top medical doctors, his father was one of the top medical doctors in Egypt. At an early age, he became what we would know as a lay monastic. And he was leading a large community of, on the early, he followed the early fathers and mothers of the church. That was his main thing. And so, I mean, here I am in Turkey I'm, you know, And I, of course, I'll do this for Paul, you know. Yeah, you know, so I'm just thinking I'm going to do it for Paul. And we'll get together, no problem. Uh, So at that point, in September of this year, so that would be September, around the summer of 2011, something began to happen in me. Uh, let me just say deep spiritual movement. <laughs> now, was, was this before or after the retreat? is before, before the retreat. This is after the call. Okay. So I thought in my mind sure. Now the thing too is Father Attaf, who I call Father Atef now because he's my spiritual father, and that will, the little best unfold as I'll tell this story. Um, he had been in isolation and prayer for a year. So when he was coming out, he had been in isolation and prayer for one year, and he was only coming out for our retreat. And it was a week of just him and us three, the, or four, there was four of us. There four of us? Yeah, four of us. um, Two from England, Paul and myself. and And we would just talk about spiritual life. And he would share about things. Now my doctorate is in the history of spirituality, Christian spirituality. So I studied monastics for a long, long time. But most of us have never had the personal experience of literally or studying the early fathers or mothers of the church, actually being with one. I mean, he was one. He personified it in every way, in his lifestyle, and everything. And um, it's important to understand that Eastern monasticism is quite different than Western monasticism and Roman Catholicism, because in Eastern History of the Eastern Church, monastic movements were always only communities that were separate from the organized church. They were not under the authority of any bishop or patriarch. They were totally separate. And the patriarch and the bishops actually would go to the monastic fathers and mothers for counsel and wisdom and prophetic insight. So, when monastic teaching and understanding went into the Western Church and Roman Catholicism, in that setting, the monastic movements had to be approved and come under the authority of the Pope. That's why they're called orders. They're legal, they're legal, church, church legal orders of Roman Catholicism. In the East, it's not. It's totally different. They're communities. Mm-hmm. And uh, many, if you go through the church history, many of the bishops, early bishops and patriarchs of Eastern Christianity were often selected from the church fathers and mothers of the monasteries, which is really quite. And mo- often we have stories of monastic fathers and mothers knowing that the bishop is coming to them, actually, hide because they don't want to be ordained. And they don't want to be in the church. Their calling is to be prophetic and have spiritual wisdom, fathers and mothers. This is why the early, uh, this, is, this is important to understand when I speak about Father Otto as a monastic. He was a monastic communities, but not as an ordained person in the Coptic church. See, so you separate. So you have to, to understand the East and how that started because it, uh, it's, it's very important. Now, in this time, <clears throat> Father Autef agrees to meet with us. Okay? We're planning to meet in Damascus at a monastery. Uh, and I'll tell you why that had to change. But I fully believe, and now after talking with when he is just his M.O., is the way he is, when he knew he was meeting with us, I know he was praying for us with intensity of the way he does his intercessory model, beginning back before we even got here to meeting. And something began to happen in me. Huh. Again, I was just thinking of doing it for my friend. And all of a sudden, this deep, move of uh, the Holy Spirit in my inner life that I cannot explain began to occur. And I thought, you know, sometimes the Holy Spirit moves in your life and you think, oh, that's, you know, the Lord just doing something. In my case, it was, I'm getting, uh, it wasn't decreasing, it was increasing, going deeper. I can't explain it. I'll explain the redemptive, the prophetic theme that I came to understand it as, but I had no language for it, and I didn't understand it. I didn't, you know, within the frame of, I've been, this is again not to push me, just to give you a personal understanding of my journey. I was a pastor in a, two large churches for oh, over 25 years, so 26 years. I've been in ministry a long time. I was a seminary professor. I was an author. I, you know, So it isn't like I was a novice here, okay? Well, let me throw in, I learned last night he was discipled by Floyd McClung. Yeah. Oh. So, so the fact is just the, you know, it's like when this started happening to me, it's not like I hadn't been around know, of what the Lord has done. And the Lord has done different things in my life over the different seasons. But this was something I had never experienced before. So, uh, then in October of 2000... Oh, wait, I missed that, didn't I? May? October of 2002. So, it would have been October. So, this actually this started right afterward, but October 2010, the International Turkey Network met in Chicago for our international conference. And I gave a plenary uh, talk at that uh, conference. And I titled my message because I didn't know it, but it kind of was connecting with what was happening internally That I I titled it, Thinking Future, The Changing Mission Context of Turkey in the Middle East. I believe that was the subtitle. And basically my message was that things are going to be changing to such a degree the mission context environment of Turkey that we can no longer do things as we have always done it and think we're going to be effective in ministry. That the change that is coming is so radical that we have to start thinking future now and changing now mm-hmm. our mindset, our perspective, and pray and get an understanding of how God would want us to do ministry in the future. But what, how we have done it, we've been involved in Turkey for quite a while, you know, 15 years or whatever it had been, yeah, 15 years at least. Um, you know, you get one thing about in ministry, you're in it long enough, you become very professional. You can, no matter what you're feeling like, you can give up. You know, you have to go up Sunday morning, give, you know, give up, preach. You have to give a message. You have to teach. You got it. It doesn't matter what you're feeling like. And it's very easy for people in ministry to turn on and off professionalism. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean they're feeling that way. They just know they have to do it, right? So it's the same way. We get in ruts in how we do ministry. But ministry is always contextual to what God is doing in the world. If we're not ministering according to how God is working in the world, then we're just doing our own thing. Interesting. Okay. So this, in October 2010, I gave this message. Not knowing really full implications of it, but it was coming out of my heart at a very uh, beginning stage. Now in December, let's see December uh, 2010, in Tunisia, the Arab Spring began. So, this is the first uprising in Tunisia, you remember the guy set himself afire, this set, mm-hmm. the protest that began. The Arab Spring began in December of 2010. So you can see what is beginning to happen in my own personal experience and the message of thinking future, the mission, and we still didn't think. You have to understand the Middle East had been static since for World War I. Pretty much static. Turkey had been static. The borders and and everything. And the the leaders were pretty much monarchs over each of the modern Middle Eastern states. To keep things in order. They they were brutal. But there was a lot of factions. And in that context, uh, things... You know, you didn't have moving borders, you didn't have a lot of migration, you didn't have a lot of diaspora, you didn't, you know, things were pretty static. And also during the Cold War, Turkey is part of NATO, so it was trying to be the buffer between that and the Arab world, the Middle East, so it was a really static situation. Um, And then in January of 2011, you have the protests begin in Cairo, and then in February of 2011 you had the Libya began protests and then in March of 2011 you had the uprising in Damascus now March 2011 were to meet in May of 2011 for this retreat with Madharata in Damascus this was like, once Tunisia happened, it just was like domino theory throughout the Arab world. And 2000, May 2011, because we couldn't go to Damascus, I still have a stamp in my passport for Damascus, uh, we had to go to Italy. And he, he because he was from Egypt, he, could, he only had EU uh, visa that he could go to. So we met in, in, uh, in Italy and during that time, you have to understand since this beginning, this deep movement, it only increased and by the time I arrived in Italy, not knowing what was going on still, I never really had words for it, I didn't really understand it, I just felt this and you, I'll talk about the term I came up with later. But anyway, when I showed up, we had this week together. We met with him personally. He, and, and it was just, you know, it just increased more and more. This knowing that Cairo was now getting worse and worse, he was going back to Cairo where he was living into isolation of prayer, probably for the next year, he said. <laughs> He didn't know how long, but he wanted to seek God for how to respond to the situation in Cairo because he's over a whole community of believers, of a monastic community. And um, so, now this is where the twist comes in. So, I thought, okay, you know, I went back to Phoenix. No, I went back to Turkey and then went back to Phoenix. And I get an email from him in May, the later part of May. It kind of shocked me. I forgot I even gave him an email, and I, I didn't know monks can email. <laughs> and so, you know, I was like, whoa, you know. So anyway, uh, I get an email from him, and he said, you know, he always, you know, we didn't know that each other that well, but we had spent time with others. And he's a very discerning, I mean, if he's with you for a period of time, he can, I don't know, it's, it's see. He just sees what you, what you are and around you. And that's his, it's a, it's a monastic early understanding of gifting. But a spiritual father's too, and mother's. So, he says, dear brother, my dear brother, I am, the Lord has told me to leave Egypt. And I'm moving to Phoenix. I thought, wow, <laughs> that's that's where I live. <laughs> and his sister, which I didn't know, sister and brother-in-law lived in Phoenix. Wow. And he was coming out because his life was threatened. And so either, but the Lord was moving him out of Egypt. Hmm. And during that time, it was a huge diaspora of cops. And Egyptian Christians, but this he was at kind of at the early side because the Muslim brother had not taken over yet. So when he came, there's this basement in their house, there's kind of like you open a door in the kitchen and it goes straight down into an underground basement, and that's where he lives. And he still lives monastically. But just to let from there, from the, I began to have a relationship with him, he had he got asylum. He's, uh, I meet with him almost weekly. He's like my spiritual father now. Hmm. And through this experience from there to this time, so almost four years now, five years, I have entered into, I've known about the Eastern Church, hmm. Eastern Christianity and early, early church history from being in the Middle East so long. It just becomes part of your thinking and it's part of your blood but but father atef has been my doorway into really the spiritual treasures of the east and of the early church and um so uh when we so as we move forward, then in 2011 of October, Qaddafi, we killed Qaddafi. Remember when we killed Qaddafi, just went in, boom. No reason that we should have to invade it, but we went in and killed it. In 2012 in June uh, is when the Muslim Brotherhood um, took over that was a huge diaspora of Coptic Eastern Christians to the West. Okay. Uh, then in two, July 2012, the Syrian civil war began. And then you have more diaspora. There's 2 million Syrian Iraqi refugees in Turkey today. 2 million and growing because of this situation. And then in... 2012, September 2012, is when Benghazi, our embassy, was taken in Libya. And then in 2011, you had the protest against Morsi, the Muslim Brotherhood. Okay? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh,
0: and then it was in February of 2013, we had our ITN conference, international conference, in Phoenix, or Arizona, and I... God by this time had formed a prophetic word in me, mm. and so this prophetic. When I use prophetic word now, it's not like just an immediate unction. It was. It's a deep formation
1: mm-hmm.
0: of trying to understand and put words to what's going on and trying to get respected. The title of my paper was God's eternal shaking. How should we respond? And one idea with the five themes, we'll be talking, I'll talk a little bit about that. But I believe that now I really had some language and understanding of what was going to happen. And then in May of 2013, so October was the message, or February was the message. May of 2013, we had the Gezi protest and we were in Turkey at the time, which is the first upheaval in turkey and the ack party coming out very publicly as an islamic government and leader who previously had been very very hidden very wise in how they kind of manipulate. they were back the muslim brotherhood in egypt they opened borders they thought that Assad was going to fall, so they were supporting the fall of Assad. They wanted to be the Ottoman Empire again. Without taking land, they wanted the influence. And Erdogan, who was the prime minister, was setting himself up to be that individual. Uh, So when that happened, I thought, literally, this word that had been forming in me for these years left me. Literally, I went home empty. So what I felt like the word has been fulfilled of God's eternal shaping. It's, it's it began to happen. Then, in uh, February of two thousand fourteen, the Muslim Brotherhood was overthrown. And then, in June of two thousand fourteen, was the declaration of ISIS of the beginning of a caliphate. So. That is the chronology, I know it's a lot, but it gives you an idea of my inner, how my personal life has intertwined into this and also my deep entrance into Eastern spirituality, Eastern Christian spirituality and a perspective of what is going on, which I'll deal with this afternoon on reconciliation of the diaspora of the eastern church coming west for the permanent diaspora and for the first time in church history Mm. in the 20th and 21st century the eastern church now in the western church are in the same location Mm. and for so long we have been divided and the western church has has totally been ignorant of the eastern church Mm -hmm. They, don't even knew, they didn't even know Eastern Christianity existed. The reason is in the 600s, Islam came over and conquered them. And we'll talk about that later on, uh, uh, the, how that developed in the West and the East. Now let me get to the five, how much time do I have? You have about 20, 25 minutes. Okay, great. Less if you want to have some interaction. Okay, now I want to just deal with five prophetic themes that during this time has formed in me and when this deep movement of God was working in my life um, I didn't know how to put language to it and those that are close to me ITN people will know they knew something was happening they maybe thought I was going off the deep end or something. (laughs) But I could not really share what I was experiencing because I had no language for it in the Protestant or in the Western Church. I had no language. So I had to allow God to give me language for what was happening. Now what helped me with this was that I had a spiritual father now, mm-hmm. Father Otta who I was meeting with, who in our dialogue, because he looks to me the same way, because now he's in the West.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He's never been in the West. Mm-hmm. And he's wondering, he's well read in the West, Christianity, but he did, he's wondering too, why am I here? Mm-hmm. Right? Why am I in the West? And um, so, it, it's not, it was a two-way street, but I still consider him my, my spiritual father. I mean, it, and so I can't explain that relationship, but he helped me by giving his language. Mm-hmm. In other words, when I would share what I'm experiencing, which, which you do, Okay, this is what I'm experiencing, this is what I'm feeling. He would often say something. He's a smaller guy. And most of ITMs, we've had retreats with him in my home, three days, things like that. But he's small, very soft spoken. Um, if I told you his lifestyle, that's what was the most challenging when I met him in yeah. Italy. Like, I could never live like he lives. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, he doesn't sleep much he, he only eats vegetables and drinks coffee at four in the afternoon that's it no water no nothing and he's a medical doctor that's a whole story i can tell you on spiritual disciplines that i learned from him because how he lived means he lived this way now what 30 40 years 40 years he totally rebelled against initially because he's a medical doctor he said this will the Lord was leading him to live this way. He said, this will kill me. Uh, This is not good. And in the West, you know, we're all, oh man, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. That's terrible for you, you know. But it's whether the Lord is leading you to do it that way. The other thing is, I'm not to model what he's doing. I'm not to mimic how God's leading him. I'm to be led in the spiritual life as the Lord leads me. That's what true spiritual disciplines are. They're not techniques that you implement. They're things God leads you in. It's like prayer. Well, God leads you. It's not that we just pray. It's how God leads you into prayer. And how he leads you into prayer might be totally different than he leads somebody else into prayer. So, anyway, during this time, formation. There's five, and then I'll comment, prophetic themes. I'll just call them. If you understand how I'm using the word prophetic, first is disorientation. That's the first word that gave me some understanding. And then I'll, I'll go over these. The second is historical redemptive shift. Third shaking—that's where this God's eternal shaking pre- uh, presentation I did. Shaking of nations and the church. Fourth awakening, spiritual awakening. If you want to call it that, and then fifth which is more coming clear to me, is reconciliation and church unity, global church unity. Okay, now, I told you that at, um, when this deep move of the Spirit was happening within me, who is creating something that it never really felt before. Because in the West, we think of being in control. Yourself, We think of professional ministry. So you always, you know, uh, there's no mystery on. There's no mystery mm-hmm. in the movement of the spirit much. In the West, we kind of have things organized in the way we do it. Well, this was so deep and so profound, and for two year, well almost two years, I couldn't put words to it. And my wife Barb, she's wondering, okay, she's trusting me, but I'm trying to. She's know I'm meeting with Father Opteif. She's met with Father Opteif. He's been in our home, so it's not like okay, and she's pretty well exposed, but. It's difficult, because it was happening to me. But what was happening to me, I believe, ha- is connected to what God's doing in the macro level. Okay. So the term that came to me, that was happening to me, is disorientation. What was happening in my life was disorientation. The Spirit was moving so deeply, in my internal life, it was creating disorientation. It was knocking me off balance. It was causing me to no longer be able to think in the categories that I had been thinking, been grown up in thinking, or been in the church in thinking, or been around for all of my life and used. the language, the perspective, all of that. Disorientation. Now, when that came to me, and it was really God that kind of showed me this, the key is, because the first thing Western Christians will do is say it's the devil. The devil is causing this because it's disorientation. God's a God of order, right? God's a God of peace. God's a God of, you know, tranquility. Not disruption. Not disorientation. But I believe this was, the the key key that saved me, is that I came, that this was God-initiated. Yeah. And once I came to that conclusion, it was God-initiated, I came, this led me to historical redemptive shift. Now the macro level. Meaning, the disorientation I'm feeling spiritually is happening in the heavenlies. And if God is doing something in the heavenlies and bringing about a historical redemptive shift mm-hmm. in human history that we have never seen before, we are entering, we're in the middle of, a redemptive shift in God's purposes. And in History church history or even Old Testament history. We can see at you know You know there's times where there's a little bit of change, right? Mm -hmm. But there are other times where there's massive redemptive shift. And I think I believe we're in that period. We're in a Massive redemptive shift throughout the world God initiated God orchestrated and it's happening in the heavenlies what it is creating, in, and I think I spoke this in the ITN gathering, when they were full of leaders and people who have been ministering in ITN or Turkey for a long time, and I would say it here, I don't believe anyone is exempt from this disorientation. I just don't think people in the West, especially, are understanding what it is. they're experiencing disorientation, disruption of some form and they just don't know how in our paradigms in our perspectives what it is and the thing too is we don't talk to each other about it because now I'm not not talking I'm just yeah so we just don't normally talk to each other about all these things or if we do it's often in a negative sense you know like I'm really struggling spiritually. Mm -hmm. I'm really, you know, I don't know what's going on with me. Mm -hmm. I don't feel stable. I don't feel, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. That terminology. And Christian leaders especially, Mm -hmm. what they do is push it down and just move into their professional mode. Mm -hmm. They never want to talk about it because they can't stop what they're doing long enough to figure out what this disorientation is. I believe that what this disorientation is now for me and I would say for most is that God is bringing disorientation, spiritual disorientation, deep cleansing, deep movement of the spirit to draw us to his heart, to draw us to himself. If he doesn't create this disorientation in our lives, then we will always do what we've always done. So as God initiated to draw us to his heart to prepare us in a new way to minister in a new redemptive setting in the world. So there's a choice. I believe that is at everyone's footsteps now. Either you're going to go to God's heart Accept the disorientation, embrace it. Leads us to God, to say to God, "Prepare me anew with the gifts and the passions of Your heart." So when this redemptive shift gets to the end, and there really we start seeing the consequences of this shift, we're going to be able, we're going to be prepared to minister to people with effectiveness and power. Yeah. If you trust in what you've been trained and how you've done ministry and how you prayed before and you just think, oh, when this redemptive shift happens, no, I use this word, you're going, you're going to be marginalized. You are not going to, I don't care what age you are, it doesn't matter what age. I don't care how long you've ministered, I don't care how long you've been a pastor, I don't care how long you've been in seminary, I don't care how many books you've written, it doesn't matter. The world's changing. The world is changing and it's initiated by God to fulfill his purposes. Okay? I'm not saying end times. Okay? I'm just saying to fulfill his purposes in history. I don't know what all of the timetables are but i know that that is happening Um, this goes to shaking it's kind of interesting in the disorientation but i think what in the chronology you see what's going on in the middle east and people are shocked i mean gosh this is like you know number one i believe nations are being shaken Nations are being shaken, and especially the Middle East. And how I determine shaking in that way is I believe there's also judgment occurring on the world of Islam. Because the only way, if, if, this is the other thing, when you've been involved in the Middle East a long time in Turkey, you begin to try to understand what's going on, such radical things happening by studying the politics and the religions and what trends are happening, what economically things are happening, you know, and you try to measure or understand. There's nothing wrong with that. But you have to see it from God's redemptive missional purposes. Mm -hmm. You can't interpret things simply at that one level. Because when God is initiating it, and God is shaking nations, you, we, you can go, you can read bang-by-bang bang newspaper headings, and it'll change every day, and you're going to wonder what's happening. But it's the big picture that's important to see. That God is initiating, God is orienting, God is orchestrating His purposes in the earth. And I believe that what we're seeing in the Middle East today with ISIS as being the ultimate expression now, but we've, we've, the Arab Spring has turned into ISIS, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, A a (coughs) mixture combination of militant Islamic groups that are coming together. They're no longer separate. They're coming together, they want a caliphate, they want to conquer the world. Islam's the major missional movement in the world outside of Christianity.
2: Mm
0: There's no other force or worldview that will stand up, I'll guarantee you, to the advancement, intentional, missional advancement of Islam globally, which is their intention. There's no secret. Atheism will not do it. Buddhism will not do it. Hinduism will not do it. Because they're not really missional movements. They're not, they don't think global. We have a great commission. Okay. We're the only one that is global movement to be able to stand in the reality of what... Because what is happening right now is not going to reverse. So, you know, that's the problem in Europe. Europe has no... Mm-hmm. It's a void except secularism and atheism. I mean, the church is very, very... Just held together a little bit. And most of the dynamic is coming from the Christians of North Africa or Africa.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Not Europeans. So, this, I believe, okay, now this is... One of the things, the reason I believe this is I believe God releases demonic powers in judgment. And I think God... Has he will not be mocked. And Islam has ruled the land and over God's people, the Church, since the six hundreds. And now are beheading them, or burning them up, or whatever they're doing. They're doing every means of that you can think of, and or Boko Haram in Nigeria, or, you know, you just look at it, okay? When you have Western atheist newscasters talking heads, saying what these people are doing are evil, they're using a moral term, evil. Mm-hmm. What do they know what is evil? They don't <laughs> believe that there's anything good or bad, right? Mm-hmm. right. But gut level, they know this is evil. Evil. That's you right. cannot define this as simply a political movement or a religious movement. What they're doing, and we always say it's barbarian or it's Middle Ages or whatever. The word is evil.
1: It is evil. You cannot explain it except demonically.
0: And I believe God has released demonic deception. On Islam in judgment, and we are seeing the expression of that. The other side of it, I believe God is shaking the church globally. I think every segment of the church, we'll talk about those segments this afternoon to give you a better idea. No segment of the church is not being shaken. He is going to shake everything that is not rooted in His eternal kingdom will be shaken. There are a lot of leaders, there's a lot of ways that have been done in the organized church that still have been in darkness that are going to be coming to light. You're going to see it in the days to come. Things that have been done, in, in, that have been hidden, will be revealed by God. Okay? And it's what I call the shaking of the church. Now the purpose of all this is for What? I call it spiritual awakening. So, the purpose is not to destroy. The purpose is to bring spiritual awakening. Now, I do not define this as church revivalism. I believe spiritual awakening occurs even outside of the church. It's going to be a movement in a spiritual awakening in non-believers through the Islamic world, that they're going to search for truth and God, and it's all initiated by what God's doing. And we have to be ready to minister to them. We often think, oh, we get them in the church and we have church revivalism. This is the opposite. It's not going to originate, I don't believe in the church, it's going to originate in the non-Christian world who are seeking and looking the people of life. Who has truth? Who can minister to my need? Who, who can bring healing into my life? Who can speak truth into my life? And then lastly, I'll talk about this is becoming more clear in my mind. And this afternoon I'm going to be speaking about what really the pieces that were not even all together have come together in my thinking just two days since I was invited to come and speak. I have pieces, but I think I now understand the comprehensive macro view and that will lead to our challenge. Uh, That God's purpose of bringing Eastern Christianity for the first time in church to the West is for one reason, church unity. God wants to bring unity to His church that has been divided, not only culturally, language, geographically, he wants to bring unity to the church. And I think America is the place that has the highest potential of seeing that reality happen in our day. So, the chronology I gave it to you, these are the five themes. You can kind of think through it. Then this afternoon we'll talk about, I'll give you a macro, I call it a model, of trying to understand how we can put this all together and what does that mean as it relates to church unity and our part in, in the reconciliation movement. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity to share and to give you all recognition of what you've done in my life then because of your desire to draw me to yourself and to be able to share your heart and what you're doing in the world today. To, in a sense, cry out that we lift up our eyes. To what you were doing and not be sidetracked by so many things of our world and so much evil that we see going on in our world that we you, you have not given us a spirit of fear but of a sound mind yes. and Lord in this day where we see persecution martyrdoms mm-hmm. this is nothing new you don't cause them, but you use them to so fulfill your purposes. Yeah. Yeah. I think of Stephen in Jerusalem when he was martyred. It created a diaspora and the first great mission movement out of Jerusalem to Antioch. To all who were, to us, we wouldn't be here today without that martyr. So you create things even when they're not intentional. But today you are scattering the diaspora of your historic church, your Eastern Church, for the glory of your name and the unity of the church. In Jesus' name, Amen. 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 Thank you, Andy.
2: Wow. <laughs>